Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 12, Gary Gygax. So to this point in the history of the podcast, we've discussed how the industry has evolved, the types of games that have been created, and some of the companies that have made the industry what it is today. But in order to really understand the games and why they are the way they are, we need to understand more about the people who created them. And if we're going to do that, we need to start with the godfather of role-playing games, Gary Gygax. Now, before we get into Gary's biography, I do want to reference back to comments I've made about Gary in previous podcasts, specifically the episodes about Dungeons & Dragons and TSR. While some might have viewed those comments as trying to lessen Gary's impact on the gaming world, I never intended them as such. Those comments were made solely to make the point that while he was a huge part of creating the industry we're a part of today, he wasn't the only part. Any misunderstanding was simply that, and I apologize if my words were taken as such. So with that, let's take a look at the man himself. Ernest Gary Gygax was born on July 27, 1938, in Chicago, Illinois. His father, Ernst, was a Swiss immigrant and former violinist in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and Gary got his first name from him. His middle name was chosen by his mother, Almina Emily, called Posey by friends and family, as a tribute to the actor Gary Cooper. In those early days, the Gygax family lived on Kenmore Avenue in Chicago, which put them very near Wrigley Field, the home of baseball Chicago Cubs. Gary reminisced in later interviews that they lived close enough to the park that he could hear the crowds roar during Cubs games. By the age of five, Gary was already interested in games and gaming. He started with card games, like Pinochle, then moved to board games, with chess reportedly being one of his favorites. When he was seven, Gary's interests apparently turned from games to mischief, as he joined a small group of his friends to form a group called the Kenmore Pirates. Apparently, the group found itself in trouble on occasion, and in 1946 found themselves in enough trouble that they'd gotten into a big fight with another group of boys. Gary's father was disturbed enough by this that he chose to move his family to his wife's hometown. That place? Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. The Gygaxes settled into Posey's family home in Lake Geneva, and Gary's interest in games grew. By the age of 10, he was playing make-believe games with his friends. In fact, in Gary's recollections, these games were a very early version of what is now known as live-action role-playing, with one of the friends acting as a referee for their sessions. Two of the friends Gary made shortly after his move to Lake Geneva would play big roles in his life, Don Kay and Mary Jo Powell. They reportedly were also a big part of those early game sessions. Gary stated on more than one occasion during his life that he was heavily influenced by science fiction and fantasy novels. Thanks for that influence belongs at least in part to Gary's father, who bought him pulp novels to read, and science fiction and fantasy were a staple of the pulp genre of book. By the time Gary was a teenager, he gobbled up works by Robert Howard, Jack Vance, Fritz Lieber, H.P. Lovecraft, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. If any of those names sound familiar, it's because they wrote some of the best-selling science fiction and fantasy novels of their time and have been named by Gary as huge influences on his own writing. 
1953, Gary took his first step towards what would be his ultimate creation when he began playing miniature war games with Don Kay. The two would design their own rules for the toy soldier miniatures they used, going so far as to use small firecrackers to simulate explosions during their sessions. And while I'm thinking about that, I have a couple of friends who do not need to know about that. Otherwise, they might be figuring out how to incorporate M80s into our next game session. Yeah, me and my damn big mouth. Gary admitted to having not been a very good student. In fact, a few months after his father passed away in 1956, Gary dropped out of high school in the midst of his junior year. Looking for direction, he decided to join the United States Marine Corps. However, shortly after joining, he was diagnosed with walking pneumonia and was given a medical discharge. So, at the age of 18, without a high school diploma and having been discharged from the Marines, Gary did the only thing he could think of. He moved back home to live with his mother, and he got a job as a shipping clerk for the Kemper Insurance Company in Chicago. He commuted to and from his job, and while it was a paying job, he was looking for something more to do in and with his life. Shortly after Gary's return to Lake Geneva, another step in his journey towards his gaming future was made. Gary was introduced to Avalon Hill's then-new war game, Gettysburg. Gary quickly became obsessed with the game, and many of his friends have reported over the years that he would play numerous marathon sessions every week. Avalon Hill also provided Gary with the next link in the chain of his future, as Gary purchased blank hex mapping sheets from them, which he used in creating his own games. Around the same time that Gary's obsession with Gettysburg began, Mary Jo Powell came back into his life. She'd left Lake Geneva several years earlier and had only recently returned. Gary's mother reintroduced the two, and they began a short courtship. Gary was, by all reports, absolutely smitten with Mary Jo and persuaded her to marry him. Gary was all of 19 at the time. On a side note, the marriage of Gary and Mary Jo caused a temporary rift in his friendship with Don Kay, as Don had also apparently been pursuing Mary Jo. Don was so upset that he refused to attend their wedding. However, Don apparently got over his anger fairly quickly, as the friendship resumed not too long after the wedding. Gary decided to move to Chicago to be closer to his job at Kemper Insurance. He also managed to secure a job for Mary Jo, but she was laid off not too long afterwards when she became pregnant with their first child, Ernest, nicknamed Ernie. At this time, Gary also began taking anthropology classes at the University of Chicago. Despite all of the responsibilities he had at the time, Gary still found time for his passion. Gary continued to play war games whenever he could. His habit was so serious, in fact, that when Mary Jo was pregnant with their second child, Elise, she believed he was having an affair. According to several reports, she'd gone to his friend's house to confront him about the affair she believed he was having, only to find him in the friend's basement in front of a table full of war game maps, playing war games with his friends. In 1962, Gary changed jobs taking a job as an insurance underwriter for Fireman's Fund Insurance. Shortly after that, his daughter Heidi was born. With three children, Gary decided it was time to return to Lake Geneva, so he moved the family back. It should be noted that with a few short exceptions, 
Gary would live in Lake Geneva for the rest of his life. By 1966, Gary was fully active in the wargaming hobby world. He began writing magazine articles about the subject, offering his insights on the hobby and suggestions to improve the game. Around this time, he began to utilize H.G. Wells' Little Wars books for his military miniature games and Fletcher Pratt's Naval War Game book for naval miniature games. Even at this time, Gary began to demonstrate some of the innovation he would later bring to role-playing games. According to multiple sources, Gary was always looking for innovative ways to generate random numbers, as it would make his games more interesting or challenging. Six-sided dice were prevalent, so he used those. When those weren't enough, he found inspiration from a school supply catalog. There, he noticed dice in four other shapes, which would later be known as the 20-sided, 10-sided, 8-sided, and 4-sided dice. This allowed for the generation of numbers outside the traditional 1-6 to range. In 1967, Gary joined forces with Bill Spear and Scott Duncan to create the International Federation of Wargamers, or IFW. The IFW grew quickly in part because several other wargaming clubs already in existence folded into the group. The primary goal of the IFW was to promote interest in wargames of all periods. The IFW provided a forum for wargamers, since they published a number of newsletters and had meetings all over the country. This allowed for the formation of local groups and for those groups to share a common set of rules, which hadn't been traditionally done. Also in 1967, Gary organized and hosted a 20-person gaming meet in the basement of his home in Lake Geneva. Later on, this would be known as Gen Con Zero. The first Gen Con took place the following year, when Gary rented the Horticultural Hall in Lake Geneva for $50, which is about $370 today. He called the meeting the Lake Geneva Convention. Gen Con is the shortened form of that, and it's the name the convention is known by to this day. In 1969, Gary would meet another person with a large part to play in his future when he met Dave Arneson at Gen Con 2. Now, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, Gen Con is one of North America's largest annual hobby game gatherings, drawing tens of thousands of attendees every year in Indianapolis, Indiana. Gary wasn't resting on his laurels. In 1970, he joined forces with Don Kay, Mike Reese, and Leon Tucker to form a military miniature society called Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association, or LGTSA. It should be noted that the first offices of the LGTSA were in Gary's basement, which would be a theme of his companies moving forward. Not long after the creation of the LGTSA, Gary hooked up with Robert Kuntz to found the Castle and Crusade Society of the IFW. Gary admitted to being fond of the medieval period, which tracks with many of the groups he formed and rules he created over the years. One thing many folks might not know is that his initial reasons for playing his war games in this period is because, as he himself stated, he'd found miniatures appropriate to the period. He'd found pirate miniatures or renaissance miniatures. Maybe we'd be playing a much different game today. In late October of 1970, Gary lost his insurance job. With a wife and five kids to support, as his daughter Cindy and son Luke had arrived in the intervening years, Gary decided to go for broke. 
he decided to capitalize on his love of games by designing board games for commercial sale. However, enthusiasm for and love of something doesn't necessarily result in success, and Gary realized quickly his plan wasn't going to be successful. That might also have been because he only grossed $882 in 1971, which would be about $5,600 today. So, knowing he needed to do something to bring in a steady income, he started cobbling shoes in his basement. I realize in 2021, many of our listeners might not know what a cobbler is, other than a type of fruit pie, but in the early 70s, cobblers were still a much-needed profession. For those who don't know, a cobbler is someone who repairs shoes. Like I said, in today's discardable society, there aren't many cobblers left, but at the time, it was a profession that could bring in decent money if you could bring in the business. Apparently, Gary was able to bring in a decent amount of business as he was able to be a cobbler and continue to focus on game development. In 1971, he began working as an occasional editor at Gaiden Games, who published war games. While employed by Gaiden, he produced the board games Alexander the Great and Dunkirk, the Battle of France. I should also note that earlier in the year, Gary had published a little book he co-wrote with Jeff Parrott called Chainmail. I discussed the importance of Chainmail in the episodes about D&D and TSR, but for a quick refresher, Chainmail was a set of rules for miniature wargaming that simulated medieval-era tactical combat. The very first set of rules were published in the Castle and Crusade Society's fanzine, but when Gaiden hired Gary to produce a Wargaming with Miniatures series of games, a full edition of Chainmail was the first book released. It should be noted that this first version of Chainmail included a fantasy supplement that included a system for wizards, warriors, and non-human monsters. This was drawn heavily from the works of Tolkien and many other fantasy sources. Reports are that Chainmail sold about 100 copies a month, and by the standards of that time, that was fairly successful, especially for a publisher the size of Gaiden. But Gary wasn't done. He collaborated with Mike Reese and Leon Tucker on the game Tractics. Gary's major contribution being the introduction of a 20-sided spinner, or a coffee can with 20 numbered poker chips, all of which were later changed to a 20-sided die to use to resolve combat instead of the traditional six-sided die. Gary also collaborated with Dave Arneson on the Napoleonic naval war game Don't Give Up the Ship. Now, as we get into the next part of Gary's story, there's a bit of controversy over a part of it. Over the years, it's been reported that Dave Arneson adapted large portions of the chainmail rules to fit the campaign of his Blackmore role-playing game. However, over the years, there have been an equal number of reports that while Dave did read the rules and found inspiration in them, he actually only utilized small amounts of the rules or removed what he used after a short amount of time. I'm not here to prove or disprove either theory. Both are being reported here in order to provide balance to the narrative. And regardless of which side you believe, what isn't questioned is that Dave Arneson had, at the very least, read the chainmail rules and was familiar with them. What also isn't questioned is that he had his Blackmore campaign, which was a fantasy game with a whole lot of role-playing in it. So, in late November of 1972, Dave Arneson and his friend David Megary, who'd invented the board game Dungeon, made their way to Lake Geneva to show their games to Gary. Yeah, I know. Why were these two coming to Gary with their games? Well, 
He was a representative of Gaiden Games, and as such, could help them get their games published if he liked them. And since Arneson had worked with Gary previously, they had a relationship by which he felt comfortable going to Gary to present his work. And according to all reports, Gary saw the potential in both the games. However, it's also been reported that Gary was especially interested in Blackmore. Gary and Dave Arneson started almost immediately to collaborate on what they called the fantasy game, which eventually would evolve into Dungeons & Dragons. Within two weeks of Arneson's demonstration to him, Gary had created a 50-page set of rules. But like any good game developer, he needed to alpha test his rules. For this, he did what I would do if I'd been in the same position. He got his two oldest children, Ernie and Elise, to play the game, utilizing the setting he called Greyhawk. It didn't take long for the game group to add Don Kay, Rob Kuntz, and eventually a much larger circle of players. In fact, Gary sent the 50-page rule set he created out to his wargaming contacts, asking them to play the new game. In today's terms, that would be a beta test, or a play test, depending on the source. While all of this role-playing was going on, Gary and Arneson were trading off notes about the two campaigns they were running, Gary's Greyhawk and Arneson's Blackmore. However, when the final draft of the game was written, there were several changes that Arneson reports he hadn't seen, and Gary's view of some of the rules were also different from what Arneson had envisioned. Speaking of that final draft of the rules, Gary compiled the reports from all of the playtests that either he or others had run, then created a 150-page revision of the rules. This revision happened sometime in mid-1973. Gary admitted over the years that he drew a lot of inspiration for the game from multiple fantasy sources, and it becomes especially clear when you look at the way magic users forget their spells immediately after they cast them. That was inspired by the Dying Earth stories from Jack Vance. Of course, I also mentioned the links to Tolkien in the D&D and TSR episodes, so you can catch those in the archives to hear about that. When the time came to publish, Gary, being a loyal employee of Gaiden Games, asked them to publish it. There was a problem, though. The way the game was designed, it was a three-volume rule set, Player's Guide, Dungeon Master's Guide, and Monster Guide, to be contained in a labeled box. This was, unfortunately, way beyond the scope of something a small publisher like Gaiden was able to do. So Gary decided to try his luck with another company he'd worked with in the past and pitched the game to Avalon Hill. Now, at the time, Avalon Hill was the largest company in wargaming, so they did have the ability to publish a game the size of what Gary was presenting. The problem he ran into with them, though, was that no matter how much he tried to convince them, the folks at Avalon Hill didn't understand the concept of a role-playing game, and Flat turned him down. Now, to be fair, you can't blame Avalon Hill. I mean, to this point in the gaming world, role-playing games just didn't exist. In their minds, what Gary was suggesting was as foreign as the idea of someone pitching the concept of a Tesla to Henry Ford in the early 1900s. While Gary was working to sell the game, he continued to play and refine the rules. In fact, by 1974, his Greyhawk group, which, as I mentioned before, was himself, his son Ernie, daughter Elise, Don Kay, and Rob Kuntz, had added Terry Kuntz and several other players to grow to over 20 people. 
Rob Coons became a co-dungeon master so that he and Gary could have smaller, more manageable groups to play. Now, if you listen to the podcasts about D&D or TSR, you have a pretty good idea about what's coming next. After the break, we'll get into the move that would ultimately change the gaming world forever. Okay, so in 1973, Gary made the decision to leave Gaiden Games, along with Don Kay. The company Tactical Studies Rules, later and forever to be known as TSR, was formed. Fun fact, TSR was formed with each man kicking in $1,000. Reportedly, Don Kay got his grand from borrowing against a share of his life insurance policy. The $2,000 the two men kicked in was earmarked to print 1,000 copies of the D&D boxed set. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, you already know what happened next. Wait, you haven't been listening from the beginning? You haven't heard the TSR episode? All right, pause this, go back and listen. I will wait. Okay, you done? Good. Now, for the sake of thoroughness, let's do a brief cover of what happened after Gary and Don formed TSR. They realized pretty quickly that two grand wasn't going to be enough to publish the game the way they wanted to, so they created and published a set of war game rules called Cavaliers and Roundheads to be used as a fundraiser for D&D. Now, as you may have guessed, or you already knew, that didn't work out the way they planned. Sales of the game were poor, and a bad situation was made worse by the fact that the cost to publish D&D jumped from 2000 to $2,500. So realizing they didn't have enough money to publish, quickly running out of ideas, and with a fear that some other wargamer group or group of players might publish something similar before they could, Gary and Don decided to bring in a partner. In December of 1973, a game-playing acquaintance of theirs, Brian Bloom, offered to drop $2,000 into TSR, with the proviso being he become a partner in the company. Gary and Don agreed, ultimately, and publishing on the D&D boxed set began. However, Gary didn't put all of his eggs into one basket. While D&D was being printed, he was working on other game rules, focusing on miniatures and tabletop battle games with rules such as Classic Warfare and Warriors of Mars. Now, as we've discussed before, D&D was officially released in January of 1974 as a boxed set. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, those first thousand games were hand-assembled, all the way from putting the books together to assembling the boxes and pasting labels on them. We've also noted before that these early games were assembled in Gary's house, which makes for an almost romantic creation story. It also doesn't hurt when it's noted that all thousand copies sold out in less than a year. And another fun fact is that according to multiple sources, one of those first printings sold at an auction in 2018 for a cool 20 grand. So, as 1974 was heading to a close, Gary was on a high. D&D was a successful launch, and he had a lot of ideas for the game moving forward. At the relatively young age of 36, both he and Don Kay were planning out the future of their company. But as we reported in the episode on TSR, Gary and the company would take a big body blow at the beginning of 1975. In January of 1975, Don Kay died unexpectedly of a heart attack. 
His death was so unexpected that he'd made no plans concerning his one-third share of TSR, so it reverted to his wife Donna. The relationship between Donna Kay and Gary hasn't been well reported on, but a quote from Gary in 2003 on EN World is telling. Quote, she was less than personable. After Don died, she dumped all the tactical studies rules materials off on my front porch. It would have been impossible to manage a business with her involved as a partner. End quote. Now, in fairness, Donna Kay wasn't a gamer or even a fan of gaming, so her disinterest in being a part of the company is understandable. It would be like if I kicked off tomorrow. I'm 99% confident my wife would not keep this podcast going. I mean, she does have an interest in gaming, but she doesn't have that deep, long-lived love of the hobby that I do. So putting in all the work necessary to do this podcast every week just wouldn't be appealing to her. Oh, and and don't worry, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Or maybe for some of you, it should be more along the lines of, I'm sorry, I'm not going anywhere soon. So, with Donna Kay's actions, TSR's headquarters was forced to move from the Kay's dining room to Gary's basement. It also meant that something had to be done with Don's one-third share of TSR. What Gary and Brian Bloom did first was to reorganize the company. While TSR was originally a partnership, they realized they needed to create a corporation in order to avoid issues in the future. So in July of 1975, TSR Hobbies was formed. At its creation, Gary owned 150 shares and Bloom owned 100. There was also an option in the incorporation agreement that both men had an option to purchase up to 700 shares at any point in the future. Keep track of that. It comes back in a few minutes. Now, I'm sure both men thought this would resolve the issue. However, they quickly realized that they had a problem. TSR Hobbies owned nothing. D&D was owned by the old partnership, and to transfer it to the new corporation, Donna Kay was going to have to be bought out. There was a problem. Neither Gary or Brian had the money to buy out the shares. So, Brian convinced Gary to allow Melvin Bloom, Brian's father, to buy out Donna Kay's shares in the old partnership. Those shares were then converted into 200 shares of TSR Hobbies. At the same time, Brian Bloom bought another 140 shares. So, if you're keeping score, the Blooms owned 440 shares of TSR Hobbies, while Gary only owned 150. This meant that Gary went from having the controlling share, and therefore being in charge of the company, to basically being an employee of the Blooms. One has to believe Gary wasn't happy about this development, though his true thoughts on that part of the matter, well, they haven't been published anywhere I could find. Anyway, regardless of how Gary felt about that new arrangement, he kept putting out new product at a fever pace. He wrote the D&D supplements Greyhawk, Eldritch Wizardry, and Swords and Spells. He also worked with Brian Bloom to design the Western-themed game Boot Hill. And to top it off, he created the magazine The Strategic Review and put himself in place as editor. By the way, all of that took place in 1975. By 1976, Gary had decided he wasn't happy with the strategic review, so he hired Tim Kask as the first employee of TSR and assigned him to create a new magazine with an industry-wide feel. That magazine was originally titled The Dragon, 
then eventually shortened to Dragon. In numerous interviews over the years, Gary praised Cask's work on Dragon and even admitted he hadn't anticipated the long-lasting appeal of the magazine. As we move forward to 1977, we need to note that this is the year that D&D and AD&D were split off. For more on that split, please check out both the D&D and TSR episodes in the archives. One thing I do want to repeat here is that split continued the difference of opinions between Gary and Dave Arneson, and it was a hurt that I don't believe was ever quite healed. Gary continued to throw himself into his writing for both AD&D and D&D. Now, I'm going to admit this is about to be an info dump, but I need to do this so you understand just how much of his creative is in the product. Ready? All right. Gary wrote the AD&D hardcovers for the Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual, and Monster Manual 2. He also either wrote or co-wrote adventure modules for both of the products. Those included The Keep on the Borderlands, Tomb of Horrors, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, The Temple of Elemental Evil, The Forgotten Temple of Therizdun, Morden Kanan's Fantastic Adventure, Isle of the Ape, and the seven modules that were later combined to create Queen of the Spiders. By the way, those are all epic, legendary adventures. In 1980, Gary's longtime campaign setting, Greyhawk, was published. Released as the World of Greyhawk Fantasy World setting, Folio, it was expanded three years later into the World of Greyhawk Fantasy game setting, Box Set. One could draw a direct correlation between Gary's output and the success of TSR, as in 1980, sales of D&D hit $8.5 million. To put that in perspective, in 2021 dollars, that would be a little over $28 million. And Gary didn't just focus on D&D. He also assisted on the science fiction role-playing game Gamma World in 1981 and co-authored the adventure for that game titled Legion of Gold. Now, as we've discussed before, the early 1980s brought a number of controversies to the role-playing game world. Gary went on 60 Minutes in 1985 to defend the game and the hobby, and would continue to do so as needed in various interviews for the rest of his life. It should also be noted that Gary and others at TSR received death threats around this time, and Gary's lone concession to those was to hire himself a bodyguard. By 1982, company revenues had increased to $16 million, about $45 million today. But it wasn't all wine and roses for Gary at this time. At some point during this period, Brian Bloom had convinced Gary to allow Brian's brother, Kevin, to purchase their father's share in the company, turning what had been a father-son control into a brotherly control of TSR. By 1981, the Blooms and Gary were regularly banging heads concerning the future of the company and their competing visions for it. Now, at the same time, Gary's personal life was in shambles. He'd been a longtime smoker and drinker, which, when combined with his creation of the, quote, satanic Dungeons and Dragons, brought him into conflict with the Jehovah's Witnesses, of which he and Mary Jo had been longtime members. So they both left the congregation and disassociated themselves from the religion. 
However, things reportedly went from bad to worse. According to numerous reports, including Gary himself, he'd begun smoking marijuana in 1970 and had transitioned to cocaine in the early 1980s. Mary Jo, frustrated by Gary's constant working and the reports of extramarital affairs, had begun drinking to what some would consider excess, and the two were arguing frequently. In 1983, Gary and Mary Jo divorced. By all accounts, it was a rough divorce process with acrimony across the board. Of course, at the same time, the Blooms took action to try to sideline Gary from the day-to-day operations of the company. They split the company into multiple parts, as detailed in the TSR episode, and made Gary the president of TSR Entertainment Inc. with the charge to head off to Hollywood to see what could be licensed. Gary's first shot in Hollywood was a success. He became the co-producer of the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon that aired on CBS and led its time slot for two years. And in 1984, he'd come to an agreement with Orson Welles to star in a Dungeons & Dragons movie, with John Borman to produce and direct. Gary was making the most of his time in Hollywood. He rented a mansion, went to all the parties and events he could, and according to reports, spent a whole lot of time with a number of young Hollywood starlets. But Gary's time in Hollywood would be short-lived. Now, we've discussed this in the TSR episode, but I'll mention it again for context. In 1984, at almost the same time as his agreement for the D&D movie, Gary found out TSR was being shopped around by Kevin Bloom for $6 million due to serious financial difficulties. Needless to say, Gary abandoned Hollywood to return to Lake Geneva, meaning his D&D movie would never be made. What Gary found out when he got back to Lake Geneva was shocking. At the time, TSR was the industry leader, grossing nearly $30 million a year, but it was barely breaking even. To put that in perspective, That would be like a company grossing $78.5 million today and barely breaking even. Now, Gary's response to this was detailed in the TSR episode, so I'm not going to drag it back out here. But what ultimately happened is that Gary exercised his 700 share option in March of 1985, regaining control of the company. He reinstalled himself as the president and CEO and immediately began working to save the company. He started by reaching out to Dave Arneson to look into publishing some of Arneson's Blackmore material. He also created a new AD&D book, Unearthed Arcana, which, for those who don't know, was a collection of material from Dragon Magazine articles. And, to top it off, he wrote a novel set in his Greyhawk setting, Saga of Old City, creating Gord the Rogue to be the protagonist. He also made a decision at the time that would come back to bite him in the ass when he hired Lorraine Williams to be TSR's company manager. But we'll get to that bite in the ass a little later. Gary's publishing decisions paid off. Unearthed Arcana was released in July of 1985 and sold 90,000 copies in the first month. Saga of the Old City sold really well, and Gary dropped a sequel called Artifact of Evil. So, Gary had managed to save the company. Unfortunately, this is where that bite in the ass comes in. In October of 1985, Lorraine Williams announced that she'd purchased all of the shares of the Blooms, adding in that Brian Bloom had used his own 700-share purchase option prior to her purchase. This meant she had majority share, 
and she used this majority to install herself as the president and CEO of TSR. She also informed Gary that in no uncertain terms, he would have no future contributions to make to TSR. And in a further spiteful move, she shelved a number of Gary's completed projects, never allowing them to be released. Gary's attempts to counter these efforts were detailed in the TSR episode, but suffice it to say, he was unsuccessful. Realizing that if he stayed at TSR, he was basically screwed from a creative standpoint, he resigned all of his positions with TSR in October of 1986 and settled all remaining disputes with the company by December of that same year. Gary's settlement terms with TSR gave him the rights to gourd the rogue, as well as any D&D character whose name was either an anagram of or play on his own name, such as Urag or Zagig. The downside is that he was forced to give up all the rights to all of his other work, including the world of Greyhawk and the names of all the classic characters he'd used in D&D material, such as Mordenkainen, Robolar, and Tensor. After a crushing blow like this, most of us would probably crawl under a rock to hide for a while. Well, okay, maybe I'm the only one and maybe it's my rock. Anyway, the point here is that Gary didn't do that. In fact, he was almost immediately contacted by someone he was friendly with from the wargaming community. Forrest Baker, who'd done some consulting work for TSR in previous years, had a vision for a new gaming company and he believed Gary was the creative force needed to make it happen. Now, to be honest, Gary reported he had no desire to manage a company. And after the TSR debacle, you can't really blame him. I mean, all he really wanted to do was create. Baker assured Gary that that's exactly what he'd be doing, creating product. Baker also assured Gary that by using Gary's name, they'd be able to raise a million dollars or even two million dollars in investment money to start a company. Gary agreed, and in October of 1986, while he was still settling issues with TSR, but after he'd officially resigned, New Infinities Productions, Inc., NIPI, was announced publicly. Gary also took a final shot at TSR, convincing Frank Menser and Kim Mohan to leave TSR to bring their creativity to NIPI. But Gary's run of bad luck continued. Forrest Baker bailed on the company when the promised outside investment money failed to materialize, and Gary was forced, basically against his will, to once again head a company. Leaning on the product that had helped him save TSR before, he licensed Greyhawk from TSR and wrote a new novel for Gord the Rogue called Sea of Death and released it in 1987. That success led to more novels, and their success kept NIPI afloat. With NIPI's early success, Gary was able to bring in Don Turnbull from Games Workshop to manage the company, lessening his workload so he could concentrate more on creating and less on the minutiae of the day-to-day -day operations. Gary took advantage of this to work on a new game with Mohan and Menser, called Cyborg Commando. It was a science fiction-based RPG and was published in 1987. But it didn't sell well, and it got poor reviews. Menser and Mohan continued to work on product for the company, creating a series of generic RPG adventures called Gary Gygax Presents Fantasy Master. They sold moderately well, but it was obvious that Gord the Rogue was still the meal ticket for NIPI. 
Lorraine Williams and TSR also became the bane of NIPI's existence around this time. NIPI had attempted to publish an adventure written by Menser called The Convert in 1987. It had originally been written as an RPGA tournament adventure for D&D, but TSR had wanted nothing to do with it at the time. Menser had gotten verbal approval from TSR to publish it with NIPI, but since the permission wasn't in writing, Williams and TSR filed an injunction to prevent the sale. The injunction was lifted later on, but of course that process drained NIPI of capital. For the record, this was not the last time Lorraine Williams and or TSR would be a thorn in Gary's side or a giant pain in his ass. Now, while all the injunction drama was going on, Gary had a big positive occur in his personal life, as he became a father again. He'd been involved with Gail Carpenter, who'd been his assistant at TSR, for about a year at that point. In November of 1986, their son Alex was born. He was her first and Gary's sixth child. According to multiple sources, including Gary's biographer Michael Whitwer, Gary made the decision when Alex was born to try to be a better father than he'd been for his other five children. However, I do feel the need to add here that most of the published comments I've seen from his older children say positive things about their childhoods and their relationships with Gary. On August 15, 1987, Gary and Gail made it official and got married. They'd be together for the rest of Gary's life. Of course, even the new Gary Gygax couldn't stop creating, so it was back to work for him. During 1987 and 1988, he collaborated with Flint Dill on the Sagard the Barbarian books, wrote the book Role-Playing Mastery, as well as its sequel, Master of the Game, and cranked out two more Gord the Rogue novels, City of Hawks in 1987 and Come Endless Darkness in 1988. However, Gary would decide to bring the Gord the Rogue series of novels to an end with Dance of Demons, released shortly after Come Endless Darkness. His reasoning for this was that TSR had basically rewritten the entire setting for Greyhawk by 1988, and Gary, admittedly both hurt and pissed off, decided to blow up his version of Orth in the final book, bidding adieu to Gord forever. Now, there are those, myself included, who would call this particular move a bit short-sighted. After all, Gord the Rogue was the only consistent income stream NIPI had for the entirety of its lifespan. So to blow up the series and not make more would leave a hell of a hole. And that hole would prove to be unfillable. In 1988, Gary announced that he and Rob Kuntz, whom you'll remember from earlier in this episode as Gary's co-DM during the early days of the Greyhawk campaign, were going to work together again. The idea was that they would create a multi-genre fantasy RPG, call it Infinite Adventures, support it with different types of game genres, and, most importantly, detail the castle and city of Greyhawk as they had both initially envisioned them, though they would, of course, change the name to Castle Dunfalcon to avoid the long arm of Lorraine Williams. But before they could get anything going, NIPI went broke and filed for bankruptcy. The company was dissolved in 1989. Gary didn't miss a beat, though. Shortly after the end of NIPI, he decided to go in another direction. He announced that he was working on The Carpenter Project. This was a different kind of role-playing game, 
as it was to be much more rule-heavy and complex than D&D, which only took 150 typewritten pages. Simultaneously to this, he stated his desire to create a horror setting for the new game called Unhallowed. With an undertaking that big, Gary realized he was going to need help. So with that in mind, he joined up with game designer Mike McCulley. Word of what they were up to got to the folks at Game Designers Workshop, and they expressed interest in publishing the new game. At the same time, JVC and NEC, who published very successful computer games, were looking for a new role-playing game system to utilize for a new series of computer games, and they expressed interest as well. But they didn't want to do a horror game. So, to take advantage of this investor interest, Gary and McCulley shifted gears, focusing on a fantasy setting they named Mythos. JVC then requested a game change for the overall RPG, suggesting Dangerous Dimensions as a name which Gary and McCulley agreed to, because of course you do when that's when the money people ask. Things progressed well until March of 1992, when TSR filed an injunction against Dangerous Dimensions, claiming the name and initials were too similar to Dungeons & Dragons. Gary, having dealt with TSR and Lorraine Williams on one too many occasions to this point, quickly pivoted, changing the name of the game to Dangerous Journeys, thereby rendering the injunction moot. NEC and JVC agreed to that name change, and work continued on the new game. Now, I need to slow down for a second and explain the enormity of what was being proposed and created here. The idea was for the role-playing game and setting to be published by Games Designer Workshop, the Mythos Computer Game by NEC and JVC, and Gary was going to publish a series of books based on the Mythos setting. Now, while we see this type of marketing all the time now, in the early 1990s, that was a fairly new concept. Late in 1992, the Dangerous Journeys role-playing game was released by Games Designers Workshop. Almost immediately, TSR jumped in again, filing another injunction against the entire system, arguing that Dangerous Journeys was based on D&D and AD. The injunction failed, but TSR continued with the lawsuit. Gary stated his belief that the entire point of TSR's lawsuit was spite and the hatred for Gary by Lorraine Williams. However, the suit was enough for NEC and JVC, and they pulled out of the project, killing the Mythos computer game. During the production period in this time of lawsuits, Gary did write three novels for the project. The Anubis Murders, the Samarkand Solution and Death in Delhi were initially published by Penguin ROC and later reprinted by Paizo Publishing. By 1994, the legal battles had drained all of Gary's cash. Believing TSR to be in the same boat, he offered to settle. Ultimately, TSR paid Gary very well for all the work he'd done on Dangerous Journeys and Mythos. While the official numbers were never released, it is believed that Gary's settlement was well into the six figures and gave TSR full rights to the project, other than the novels. And in the ultimate spite move, and quite frankly a move that further proves how incompetent the leadership of Lorraine Williams was at TSR, Dangerous Journeys and Mythos were permanently shelved. Gary bounced back again, though. In 1995, he began work on another computer role-playing game, 
called Legendary Adventures, with legendary spelled with a J instead of a G, it was returned to simple rules for Gary. And while he wasn't able to find a partner to release it as a computer game, he decided to move forward and publish it as a tabletop game. In 1997, after the announcement that TSR was going to be sold to Wizards of the Coast, another opportunity presented itself to Gary. Christopher Clark of Inner City Games Design pointed out to Gary that with TSR's focus being trained on the sale to Wizards, it was a good time to produce game material to sell in stores, since nothing new would presumably be coming out during the sale process. Gary and Clark's partnership resulted in a pair of adventures, A Challenge of Arms in 1998 and The Ritual of the Golden Eyes in 1999. Gary also took the opportunity to bring Clark's company to the intention of investors, hoping they'd provide the funding for legendary adventures. While that wasn't on the menu, the investors that came aboard were sufficient enough for Gary and Clark to form a partnership called Hecaforge Productions. It was through this partnership that Gary was ultimately able to publish Legendary Adventures as a three-volume set, The Legendary Rules for All Players in 1999, Legend Master's Lore in 2000, and Beasts of Legend also in 2000. I want to add something else to this part of the narrative. When the sale of TSR to Wizards became final, Peter Ackeson, who now owned both companies, reached out to Gary to try to settle any bad blood Gary had towards his former company. Ackeson took the opportunity to purchase all of Gary's residual rights to D&D and AD&D for a six-figure sum, though again the amount of those six figures hasn't been accurately confirmed. Now, this agreement didn't include Gary writing any new adventures or supplements for D&D. However, he did agree to write the preface to the 1998 adventure Return to the Tomb of Horrors, which was a quasi-sequel to his original Tomb of Horrors. He also started writing for Dungeon Magazine again, hosting the column Up on a Soapbox from January 2000 to June 2004. Gary also became a walking advertisement of sorts for the upcoming third edition, being photographed at numerous conventions wearing shirts with the 3E design Wizards was using to promote the new edition. It should be noted that Gary considered Legendary Adventures to be his best work ever, and he continued his work on it throughout this period. But the sales never met expectations, and Gary once admitted his own frustrations with that situation. On June 11, 2001, Stephen and Davis Chanel of Troll Lord Games announced Gary would be writing new books for their company. The early work Gary did for Troll Lord was a series of hardcover books that would eventually be known as the Gygaxian Fantasy World. Book one was The Canting Crew, which came out in 2002 and was a look at the underworld of rogues. He added World Builder and Living Fantasy, both in 2003, which were generic game design books that could be used in many different settings. After the first four books in the series, Gary decided to step down from writing, taking on an advisory role for future entries in the series. And yes, the series continued to carry his name, even though his creative input wasn't necessarily a part of those books. On October 9th, 2001, Necromancer Games announced that they would be publishing a D20 version of Necropolis, which was a game Gary had originally intended to publish at NIPI, and that had been printed as a Mythos Adventure by Games Designers Workshop in 1992. 
Necromancer Games version was entitled Gary Gygax's Necropolis when it was released in 2002. By 2002, Gary had given Christopher Clark and Hecaforge a huge 72,000-word text describing Legendary Earth. Clark decided to split up the text, expanding it into five books, each totaling about 128,000 words. Hecaforge, published Gazetteer in 2002, and Noble Kings and Great Lands in 2003. But by 2003, Hecaforge was having money problems, so Clark asked Troll Lord Games to be what's known as an angel investor, which meant Troll Lord Games published the final three books in the series. By the early 2000s, Gary's legend had grown to almost mythic proportions, even though he was still very much alive and very much active in the role-playing world. Due to this, he was invited to provide voiceover work for a number of cartoons and video games. In 2000, he provided the voice for his cartoon self in an episode of Futurama called Anthology of Interest 1. He also appeared as a guest DM in the Dolores Tomb quest series of the MMORPG D&D Online Stormreach. Oh, sorry, forgot. MMORPG stands for Massively Multiplayer Online Role-Playing Game. And yeah, I had to record that a couple times to get it right because it's a mouthful. With everything Gary had accomplished to this point, he had one more massive project left to undertake. But it comes with a bit of a history lesson first. Since the beginnings of Dungeons & Dragons, Gary had mentioned Castle Greyhawk frequently, both in games and in interviews. Hell, Castle Greyhawk had been the center of the home campaign he'd run before the game was even published. However, through all of that time, he'd never published a single detail about the castle during that entire time. The legend of Castle Greyhawk was so huge that it became the inspiration for numerous other writers, including Jolly Blackburn whose Knights of the Dinner Table character, Weird Pete, has his own infamous Castle Greyhawk-type adventure. Gary decided that it had been long enough, and in 2003 announced that he and his old partner, Rob Kuntz, were going to work together to publish all of the original details of Castle Greyhawk and the city of Greyhawk. And they mentioned that there was so much stuff, it was going to take six volumes to do it. Oh, and they decided that rather than use D&D, they'd utilize Troll Lord Games' D20 system, Castles and Crusades, to do it in, so as to avoid any issues with Wizards of the Coast. In fact, Gary was so insistent on avoiding legal issues, he changed the name of the castle to Castle Zagig, which is a play on his own last name. The name of the nearby city was therefore changed to Igsburg, which is a play on his initials, E-G-G. Gary reported in multiple interviews at the time that he and Kuntz were going to do everything they could to take every single piece of material they'd ever created and or used for Greyhawk and compile it into this system so that modern gamers could not only digest it, but could also use it without a whole lot of confusion. This decision would not come without its own set of issues. You see, by the time the two had stopped working on that home campaign, the castle dungeons were 50 levels. Those levels had all kinds of complex passages, containing a thousand rooms and a ton of traps. Gary quickly realized that all of that information, plus the details necessary for the city of Igsburg and all the surrounding area, would take way more than six volumes to get out. So, 
Gary decided to compromise. He decided to compress the castle dungeons into 13 levels, which he reported was the size of the original Castle Greyhawk going back to 1973. Now, to do that, Gary and Kuntz had to go back through 25 years plus of memories and old notes. Here's the problem. Gary and Kuntz both admitted that they'd not kept comprehensive notes as they played. In fact, they were notorious for making up rules on the spot, then jotting down small details and maps. So, going back over the chicken scratch of the early 70s, they did find a common ground they could work on. Then they realized they were going to have to try to fill those gaps in from memory which if you've ever tried to do something like that, you know that ain't easy. And this memory had to contain what was in each room, what happened in each room, and whether or not they wanted to keep that or discard that information since they were taking 50 levels down to 13. Also, Gary couldn't rely on the old maps of the original city as the rights to those were now owned by wizards since their purchase of TSR, and as noted previously, Gary wanted to avoid having to deal with rights issues for those publications. What this meant, then, was that everything was going to have to be created from whole cloth, in a manner of speaking, while trying to keep the original flavor. And, just as the creative on the project got up and running, Kuntz and Gary had creative differences, causing Kuntz to back out of the project. That being said, Kuntz did create an adventure module for the project, that released around the same time as the first book. Gary decided to soldier on. It was a long process, with a lot of laborious detail work needing to be done. And Gary wasn't going to be stopped. Until he was stopped. In April of 2004, Gary suffered a serious stroke, which stopped work in its tracks. A few weeks later, he had another one. Gary spent seven months healing himself, but made his way back to the creative process. However, he had to make changes because of his health. Instead of pulling 14-hour workdays, which he'd been doing for a couple of decades, he was now limited to maybe two hours a day on, on good days. This meant a difficult project would now become damn near impossible. Gary kept plugging away, though. And in 2005, Castle Zagig, Part 1, Igsburg, the first book in the series, was finally released. Later in the year, Troll Lord Games published Kuntz's adventure module titled Castle Zagig, Dark Chateau. During this time, Jeff Talanian stepped in to help Gary with dungeon design. His efforts led to a limited edition piece, CZ9, The East Marks Gazetteer, in 2007. Also in 2007 came another huge blow to Gary. He was diagnosed with an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Look, you can Google that if you really want to know more, but all we need to understand for our purposes is that they are very deadly. In fact, Gary's doctors agreed that surgery would In fact, Gary's doctors agreed that surgery was needed. However, as their estimated survival rates varied from 50% to 90%, it's been reported that Gary had decided he'd most likely die on the operating table. Therefore, according to these same reports, Gary rejected surgery. The one lifestyle change he did make was to switch from cigarettes, which he'd smoked since the 1950s, to cigars. And then he continued to plug away on the project. In 2008, Gary finished volume two of the six-volume set. 
Castle Zagig, the upper works, contained all of the details of the castle complex above ground. Gary's plan was for volumes three and four to detail the dungeons below. However, that plan came to an end on March 4, 2008, when Gary died. In July of that year, his widow Gail formed a new company, Gygax Games, and withdrew all of Gary's licenses from Troll Lord and from Hecaforge, basically canceling the rest of the game's line. Now, before you ask, yes, I've been to the Gygax Games website. Their stated goal is to organize all of Gary's unpublished IP and figure out how to release it. However, the date on the page is from 2018, and to this point, nothing has been released that I'm aware of. So, for now, that's where we are with Gary's intellectual property. However, Gary has received a ton of honors over the years, even before he passed. Sync Magazine named him number one on the list of the 50 biggest nerds of all time. He was tied with J.R.R. Tolkien for number 18 on GameSpy's 30 Most Influential People in Gaming. He's been name-dropped by celebrities in all genres. I think it's safe to say that Gary Gygax will be remembered for as long as gamers sling dice. And that's where we're going to end today's tour. Next week, we're going to do another character piece. This time, we're going to cover Dave Arneson's history. Now, I want to take a second to let you know that on August 27th, we're doing a show about live play game streams. I want your input on this one. So if you have a stream you follow, send it to me at roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com so I can drop it on the show. We can get it a little love. As always, thank you for helping grow this podcast. We may not be the biggest, but you guys are so friggin' dedicated, and I appreciate you, and I love you for that. You can follow us on Facebook at Role Playing History Podcast. Twitter at Role Playing History Podcast or use the hashtag Role Playing History Podcast. On YouTube, we've got a channel, Role Playing History Podcast. Click on the subscribe button and hit the bell for notifications when new stuff gets posted. I mentioned the email a moment ago, so I'm not going to repeat it here. Next week, Dave Arneson, who seems to always be the forgotten creator of D&D. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.